The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about cybersecurity risks. And I am so thrilled with our guest who's returning. We are going to be speaking today with Lisa Soto. And I'm going to tell you more about her if you don't remember her before. But, oh, gosh, she is an incredible resource. She's brilliant. She's gorgeous. She's wonderful. She's a great person. And I had the great opportunity last November to actually go to her office and see the whole skyline of New York City. And she just is really, I am, she's one of my very, very favorite guests on this show and we're just so privileged to have her on so let me tell you about this woman who is a dynamo lisa soto is the managing partner at hunt and williams in new york city okay the national law journal named her as one of the hundred most influential lawyers in 2013 lisa as i said she's the managing partner of the firm in new york city and um she is the firm's top ranked privacy and data security person and she runs the practice she was voted the world's leading privacy advisor in computer world's three most recent annual surveys and she is ranked in band number one by chambers usa and chambers global for privacy and data security Lisa is also recognized as a leading lawyer in the 2012 edition of the Legal 500 United States. She was named one of Ethisphere Magazine's 2012 Attorneys Who Matter, listing attorneys who have risen to the top, and she serves as the chair of the Department of Homeland Security's Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee. Oh, my goodness. She has extensive experience counseling clients on privacy, cybersecurity, records management, and she advises on the United States federal and state privacy and data security laws, including those security breach laws. And she deals with European Union laws. Oh, my goodness. I could actually spend the whole half hour talking about all the great things she does and the advisory boards and everything else. But I would rather have you hear her, but to learn more about her, you can go to our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. You'll see her beautiful face. There's a uh, link to her blog, which is HuntingtonPrivacyBlog.com. 
and also you'll see a much more extensive bio. So without further ado, Lisa, you're wonderful. Thank you for joining us. I am delighted to be here, and it's, it's really a great pleasure. Thank you. Well, we sure had fun, didn't we? And thank, you were just wonderful to and such a host just to meet you in your law firm and see the, the beautiful view and see all the great work that you're doing. It just is inspiring for me. Thank you, Mari. So let's talk about the scary stuff, Lisa. Tell us about the threat landscape when it comes to cybersecurity risk. Sure, I'd be very glad to. Well, in the last few months, we've seen such prominent organizations as as the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, Apple, Facebook, Twitter, and even the Department of Energy announce that their computer systems had been hacked. Plus, um, most of the biggest, uh, the, the nation's biggest financial institutions also have suffered really crippling DDoS attacks uh, in, in, in recent uh, months, following, following on the heels of what was really an onslaught uh, in the fall, also uh, affecting U.S. financial institutions. So it's, it's really more clear than ever that no one is exempt and the problem is, is growing exponentially. We really think about three buckets of threat actors. Um, first, we think about nation-state attacks that are, that are known as advanced persistent threats. Um, and these are attacks that are carried out to commit, uh, for example, economic espionage or cyber warfare. That's really terrifying to me. It, oh. it is, it is, and it's, it is growing um, in, in its frequency. And then the second uh, that we think of are hacking incidents that are, are, I would call them more traditional hacking incidents. And these are uh, attacks carried out by criminals, sometimes insiders, sometimes they are uh, rogue employees within an organization. And the motivation here is financial gain. It is the uh, good old uh, treasure trove at the end of the the rainbow, uh, where the the hacker is seeking personal information or other information, uh, personal information to carry out identity theft or intellectual property, for example, of a company. And then the third bucket are hacktivist attacks. Uh, These are attacks by by folks like... um, Anonymous or LulzSec, where the attackers are motivated by their their loose ideological mission. And then the next question really is how these attacks are being carried out. Um, these are folks with with there there are di- differing ways of of uh, of carrying out these attacks. First, there are, there are criminals with with deep technical knowledge who can hack into systems. Uh, they can hook up with others through hacker websites like Pastebin, and then they can gather sufficient information to break into a system. We also need to be very wary of, of, uh, of rogue insiders. These are folks with authorized access to systems, so they're really uh, quite an insidious threat. And then, of course, there is um, the, the uh, threat that we've heard about so much recently through social engineering. Uh, humans are manipulated into unwittingly providing information that uh, would give criminals access to a system. Oh gosh, it is it it is really overwhelming because those of us who are individuals really don't have the power to do anything about this. So it That's is right. it's really up to government and large companies that have IT experts and cyber experts to help us. So what types of information is really being targeted, Lisa? Yeah, that, and that's really a very important question because once we understand the threat actors, we can understand the, the, the targeted data better because if we understand who's, who's looking 
who's looking in our system, we can generally understand what they're looking for. Um, so typically what's being sought are, are uh, uh, buckets of data that comprise research and development, for example, because you can get a, a five to seven year or more uh, jump on R&D if you can steal somebody else's R&D. You know, I just saw an article recently in um, the LA Times about that, how China is really stealing R&D so they can compete with us. And they're doing a very good job of it. Yes. It's true. So this is this is data stolen for competitive business advantage, and it yes. saves an enormous amount of time in developing new products. Um, you can also, uh, what we're also seeing is that um, there are threat actors who are sitting in systems, lying in wait uh, for the right opportunity, and mm-hmm. and that's a very um, uh, very scary thing as well. Um, the the potential for sabotage there is enormous, um, and certainly you won't, you, you want to be careful of uh, the criminals seeking out financial uh, forecasts, M&A plans, that sort of data. And then, of course, there's uh, personally identifiable information, which uh, is always um, a, a very valuable asset to acquire because you can sell it for financial gain. Right. And that's where we get that identity theft. That's right. How about which industries are really at greatest risk? You know, we sit here in kind of like a a mini Silicon Valley on Aliso Viejo. And so, you know, I worry about what kind of industries I would think because money, you know, you go to the money, it would be financial industries. So why don't you share with us what you think? Yeah, unfortunately, it's much broader than that. So, you know, what we're seeing is the the types of organizations that have uh, that that are now targeted have really broadened significantly. Mm-hmm. So, just a few years ago, what we were seeing uh, were attacks against defense contractors uh, and and uh, really companies within industries that you would assume would be targets. And now we're really at the other end of the spectrum. We're seeing attacks against media companies, against law firms, and then everyone in between. Between, like high-tech companies, financial institutions, um, energy companies. So the real challenge is for companies that have not previously been in the crosshairs to really understand the magnitude of this threat and the persistent nature of the threat. You know, even a company like Blizzard, you know, my, my daughter's boyfriend is a graphic artist for Blizzard, which is a huge video game company, you know, that, and even they've had big uh, security breaches because kids, you know, they sign up and they play games and they give credit card information, they give other information. So, I mean, we've seen security breaches, even huge ones with companies that are really catering to young people. Yeah, nobody can really rest on their laurels in in terms of their uh, current security posture because uh, even if even if a company has has a very good security framework in place, the criminals are are one step ahead and they're thinking about the next method that they use to get into a system. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So we've got these brilliant cyber techies that are making a lot of money. You know, how do you get them to go from the dark side to the light side if you don't have the money to pay them? I mean, you know what I mean? If government or if these companies, I guess private companies could pay well, but government doesn't really have the money to pay what these guys are probably getting wearing their black hats. It's difficult because it it is it is a lucrative uh, uh, crime. Yes. So it is difficult to uh, to get folks to to turn. But but some do. Yes. And uh, and we do take advantage of those skills. Yeah. Yeah. I remember Kevin Mitnick has been on my show, you know, talking about his books and he was 
you know, he was a dark side, although he wasn't making a lot of money. He was just having fun, basically, being a on the dark side. But, right. um, yeah, but now he's on the light side. Let's go on to, like, President Obama has recently issued that executive order on cybersecurity. What led to that issuance? Well, we've uh, we've been grappling with this problem um, in the government, obviously, for quite a while. But there's been really a, a flurry of activity lately in the last um, uh, year or or a little bit more than that. Um, so, in the last term of Congress, uh, there were a number of bills that were introduced to to tackle the cyber uh, cyber threat issue, but none ultimately were successful. Um, cybersecurity legislation failed twice to pass in the Senate, first in August and again in November, and now. We're seeing another run at it uh, through a, a, a bill called uh, the acronym is CISPA, um, which has just recently, um, in the last few months, passed in the House, uh, and we'll we'll see how that uh, proceeds. the The impetus to act was really very strong, and this is what uh, President Obama was was reacting to, and that is um, the the in an effort to really spur legislation forward, and also seeing the need to take immediate action. Uh, the White House began drafting and uh, and circulating drafts in the fall, and then uh, now we see the actual uh, uh, executive order having been issued that um, is is really requiring very very quick action on the cybersecurity front. So, what are some of those key provisions? Okay, let me take you through some of uh, some of the more significant um, items in in the executive order. So. First, uh, the executive order deals with information sharing, and what it does is it directs agencies um, to uh, share information with private sector companies that are being targeted. And this is um, what the, the executive order uh, requires one-way information sharing, not the two-way information sharing that was so controversial. So uh, the, the executive order limits the, the sharing to one-way information sharing. Second, and perhaps you know, probably the most critical component of the executive order is uh, what the order refers to as a baseline framework to reduce cyber risks to critical infrastructure. And let me let me pause here for for a moment to note that the the definition of pr- critical infrastructure is extremely broad and really encompasses um, a, a huge swath of uh, the private sector in the United States. Um, so what the executive order requires is that uh, NIST develop a framework to seek to reduce cyber risks to, to critical infrastructure. Now, this is a voluntary, this will be a voluntary standard. Uh, it's going to be a set of, uh, of standards and industry best practices put into this, compiled into this cybersecurity framework. And it really is a very ambitious plan uh, requiring, and I'll, I'll quote here from the executive order, requiring a prioritized flexible, repeatable, performance-based, and cost-effective approach. So that (laughs) is ambitious. Yeah, and you know what, for those students who might be listening here on the campus, and for those who aren't even kind of like understanding what we mean by infrastructure, I mean, we're talking about the, the smart grid, and we're talking about electricity, water, everything, right? I mean, why don't you just yeah. give some examples so that people understand what we're talking about? Because if we don't have any water, we don't have any electricity, I mean, not only our economy, but our whole 
our entire society is broken down, right? Absolutely. So food, transportation, yes. uh, technology. So, you know, it, it seems like almost everybody is in except for academia. Right. Even even thinking like we wouldn't be able to talk on the phone like this. That's right. Nothing. That's right. Nothing. So, right. so this is, I mean, yes, it's ambitious, but I think it's absolutely critical what can happen if our infrastructure is just broken down and you know lisa what really scares me even more and you know i've talked about this with ann kavukian because you know i didn't even want to do the smart grid till i knew that she was actually helping san diego gas and electric yeah. otherwise i refused the, the smart meter until i knew she was working on it <laughs> but um you know seriously when everything is on the smart grid and the smart grid goes down everybody's in you know everybody's hurt that's right. That's you know? right. And, and let me note here, Mari, that the, the framework will not be a mandatory standard. So um, it is voluntary, uh, and that is the nature of an executive order. So, oh, But yeah. what, what the government's doing, and another component to the executive order, is that uh, the, the White House has asked uh, agencies to consider what incentives they should put in place to incentivize the private sector to, to implement the framework. So that's another critical component of the executive order. Yeah, so they, they want to give them a carrot, but maybe they need a stick too. And um, there is there is a little bit of a stick there as well because the uh, the agencies are also some some agencies are also uh, being asked to look at their own regulations to see whether there is any authority under existing regulation to mandate uh, the the use of of the framework. Yeah. Well, what's happening with the EU? Are they doing the same thing with the European Union? Are they working on this whole issue of cybersecurity and their infrastructure there? Yeah, that's a great question because, um, you know, we are not alone. Um, the U.S. Uh, is one of so many nations that need we need to act together as a, as a global community to tackle this problem. So uh, the, the European Commission actually beat us by a bit, uh, in, uh, beat the executive order by issuing their uh, cybersecurity strategy for the European Union. And uh, as part of this strategy, the European Commission proposed a draft directive. Um, so what that proposed directive uh, includes are a couple of, of key measures. Um, first, there's a requirement that EU member states adopt uh, a strategy for this issue, which they call the NIS strategy, the Network and Information Security Strategy. Uh, and it requires that each member state of the EU designate a national authority uh, to manage cyber risks. Mm. And then the other key piece to it is that uh, there there would be an obligation for operators of critical infrastructure in uh, in various sectors like financial, transportation, energy, health, uh, to report cyber incidents that have a significant impact on the services they provide. Right, right. So, are we doing something similar to that with with our executive order or with with the legislation that we have in the United States that there has to be a reporting it's like in California you have to report to the attorney general's office if you have a security breach yeah. yeah, right. So so the security breach laws certainly play a, a significant role here. And um, 
they, the the breach laws really are a, a very significant component of all the uh, regulatory um, issues and, and and legal notification requirements that are part of this bigger cyber uh, picture. Right. Um, but there is not a reporting obligation in the executive order. Um, mm. So we're, we're looking to legislation, and there is legislation on the table right now, that would, uh, would give immunity for uh, reporting by the private sector to the government of these incidents. Okay, so immunity that they then would not be sued, or, or what kind of immunity are we talking about? Uh, criminal immunity, uh, civil immunity. What what kind of immunity are you talking about? Yeah, they wouldn't be subject to liability associated with um, with with lawsuits. For example, uh, where there's personal information that might be uh, bound up, and this is a big topic for discussion, uh, mm-hmm. the privacy issues associated with this. But where information wouldn't uh, would would be bound up in the rest of the the data that they provide to the government, um, would there be potential liability associated with that? So mm-hmm. we're still discussing the issue. It's, uh, it's very much an issue on the table. It would seem to me under you would have to set up certain conditions to make it fair that if you know if there was found that they you know that they did everything that they're supposed to do in terms of uh, cybersecurity if they followed certain regulations then then they would um, you know have that immunity but if they didn't I, I hate to let them off the hook if they didn't. Right, and that—that's precisely what's uh, what's being discussed. So we'll see. We'll see how that shakes out. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So let's say you know I know you advise companies all the time. Let's say that um, there's a CEO here in California that um, somebody shows up their door. You know, maybe the CEO finds out from the chief security officer or chief privacy officer that there's been a cybersecurity r- risk. There's been a uh, an, an invasion. And um, so you just found out that there's been an attack. What do you do? That is the the precise question that I'm asked almost every day. We're we're handling so many cybersecurity events right now. It's um, I would say you know three to five a week are oh coming in. Um, it is it is quite extraordinary. So what do we do? We look for aberrant behavior, uh, system slowdowns, uh, consumer complaints, scans that show that there are uh, some aberrations, and uh, we also have to focus on on notifications from law enforcement and uh, you know make sure that. We're not we're not ignoring those notifications because they are coming in now fast and furious. Mm. Um, and, and it's very nice, I, I think, to it's, it's a good thing to uh, coordinate with law enforcement uh, before uh, there's an issue, so that you have an early line of communication into right. the appropriate law enforcement agency. So when you find that there's been an event, uh, you want to assess your insurance posture. Do you have insurance for this? You want to think about whether you should engage an outside forensic investigator. Sometimes the internal IT staff just doesn't have the the necessary, most of the time, frankly, the, the internal IT folks don't have the necessary skills to identify and, and investigate what is essentially a crime scene. And what if it's a rogue employee? Then they're going to cover up. That is exactly right, and we have found some rogue, rogue employees as part of the IT staff, and then we have a heck of a time trying to get to the bottom of the issue because the folks that we're interviewing are the ones that have carried out this this uh, this attack. Oh goodness! So it is it is tricky. 
Um, we, we try to preserve attorney-client privilege when we're doing this sort of an investigation. That's important so that you can uh, try to preserve the privilege around any, any results that have been uh, discovered during the investigation. Um, you also need to consider your, uh, you know, what could be a, a very um, significant cornucopia of legal obligations. So, for example, the breach notification laws, both in the U.S. and overseas. Let's not forget that there are breach notification requirements overseas as well in places like Germany and Norway, in uh, in, in South Korea, in Mexico. So we have to consider uh, obligations outside the United States. We have to consider obligations under the payment card industry data security standard, as well as contractual obligations. So, for example, if uh, your system has been hacked and you have a, a non-disclosure agreement in place with a business partner and that uh, data, their data, has been exposed, you may have violated a contractual obligation to keep that data uh, confidential. Oh, yeah. and it is I'll, overwhelming I'll for these companies. It, it is overwhelming. And I'll mention one other thing, and this is, this is very scary for a lot of companies, and that is that uh, for public companies, there are uh, potentially SEC reporting requirements as well when there are security, uh, cybersecurity threats and incidents. Oh, my goodness. So how would you manage the notification process? So on the notification process, you know, you want to think very quickly about what the legal obligations are because the clock starts to run. Um, and there are there are timing requirements that we need to be very careful of. Uh, so there are certain timing requirements that are as short as five days where you have to report something within a five-day period. But most of the time with respect to data breach notification, you need to notify uh, individuals whose data was compromised in the most expedient time possible and without unreasonable delay. So there's a little bit of, of uh, play in there allowing you to, to do your investigation. Uh, but there are some states also that require notification within 45 days. And I will tell you, having worked on well over 900 of these uh, incidents, that that could be a very short period of time when there's been a major event and the investigation uh, is, is very complex. It could take months to do a, a, a fulsome investigation. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So so let's say they, they've done the investigation and now they're working on notification. What about the, the legal issues in the aftermath about, you know, the enforcement actions or the class actions? What about that? And that is the inevitable follow-up. So, you know, once you've, you've gone ahead and uh, notified those you need to notify, which could be uh, individuals whose data was compromised, it could be business partners, it could be uh, regulatory authorities, state attorneys general, uh, once that has happened, you can be pretty sure, if this is a significant event, that there will be the need for, uh, for follow-up um, legal Action And usually that's in the form of uh, filing insurance claims, and sometimes there's litigation that follows with an insurer. Uh, class actions are now rampant in this space, uh, so, so class actions are, are almost a given. Uh, and then we also deal with regulatory enforcement. So the FTC may step in and, and start an investigation, or uh, state attorneys general uh, could also request information, and, um, and there are, of course, significant um, timing requirements around these requests, so you have to work very quickly. Um, and then you also may need to manage disputes with business partners because uh, they may uh, bring an action uh, based on, on contractual obligations that you might have uh, have breached 
uh, in light of the event that has happened. Oh, my goodness, Lisa, they really need you. <laughs> it's been busy. And, you know, I, the other thing is I just can't imagine how you can keep up with all this because there's legislation all over, not only in each state and in, in Congress, but also in the EU. And, you know, we do business globally. So, oh, my goodness. So we are just out of time. So why don't you give your blog and tell us, you know, where we can go and learn more information then. Sure. Thanks, Mari. Um, so the blog is www.huntonprivacyblog.com, and uh, we post uh, from all over the world, so you can keep up on what's going on in this very fast-moving uh, policy environment. Oh, oh, my goodness. Well, you're incredible the way you keep up with this, so we will have to have you back again very soon. Thank you so much. You are wonderful, and keep up the great work that you're doing. We appreciate you. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy. Join us every Monday morning right here at on 8 a.m. at KUCI and visit our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy where you can see our wonderful upcoming guests, download podcasts, listen to archived interviews, and visit the URLs of all of our privacy experts. Thank you. Bye-bye. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.